we have such a deep distrust for our own inner voice that we look to everyone else to find out what our next right thing might be. And in my journey of writing about and thinking through and talking with people about decision-making and discernment, um, more and more I come back to this question of what if we could trust ourselves? Welcome to the Wellspring Soul Care Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Gotthard. I'm part of the Wellspring team. At Wellspring and Soul Care, our desire and focus is to help people serve God and others from a well-tended inner life. That's what we're about. And part of that journey of a well-tended inner life is decision-making or discernment. How do we know? How do we know what it means to follow God in this decision, in this moment? And that's our conversation today. Our conversation is with Emily P. Freeman. She's a Wall Street Journal bestselling author of five books, including The Next Right Thing, a simple, soulful practice for making life decisions. She wrote a guided journal with it, and she hosts the Next Right Thing podcast. We're here also to talk with her about her upcoming book, which is How to Walk Into a Room. And it also includes, of course, How to Walk Out of a Room. It's a great conversation about the process of discernment, of leaning in, listening to God. I trust you're going to be helped by it. Enjoy our conversation with Emily P. Freeman. Emily, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us today. And uh, I just met you a few minutes ago here virtually, but thank you for thank you for making time for us. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here with you. Thank you for having me. I, um, as I shared with you, I've been following you from afar, your work and your writing, which is so beautiful for for some time now. And uh, you have, well, first, maybe I, just to those of us that don't know you well, um, could you just share a little bit about your own kind of spiritual journey? What got you to to, to where you are doing what you're doing now. Sure thing. Well, it's funny, Richard, I started writing on the internet back in 2006. So mm. I think that makes me an internet grandmother, I would like to say. <laughs> uh, it just seems like so long ago, but that was back when I had tiny children. Um, and it, was, it wasn't for any reason, except I, would, I wanted a place to put my thoughts and ideas and meanderings. Uh, someplace where I knew they weren't going to disappear. Because up until that point, I had probably been writing things on the back of receipts and half written in journals and things like that. So I was a writer at heart, but mm. didn't really have, you know, nobody was reading my words. And I certainly didn't expect anybody ever to. But I started a little a little blog that just my family and friends read. And it was it was really lovely and enjoyable. But over the years, I, I learned that, you know, there's some things that I have grown passionate about. And uh, a few of those things kind of intersect uh, with, I would say, spiritual formation, mm -hmm. creativity, um, and sort of life with God in our in our everyday. And so for the past, oh, goodness, am I going to say 15-ish years? I am. That's what I'm going to okay. say. That's sort of been my work. And so, um, you know, kind of skipping ahead, we now have, uh, we have, I live in North Carolina. I don't know if I said right. that. I'm in North Carolina and um, with my husband, John, and we have three kids, those ch tiny children. They were tiny when I started writing publicly. And now I've got twins who are 20 
in their second year of college and then we have a junior in high school. And so um, in the midst of all that time, I now am preparing to release my sixth book. uh, And also in that time, I have um, become a spiritual director. So I meet one-on-one with people, but I also do sort of spiritual direction work in an unconventional way on my podcast called The Next Right Thing that's been around for about six years now. So I sort of cobble together work that is meaningful to me and have met some really lovely humans along the way, like you. Oh, that's well, it's amazing to hear even just how the what's in you. And I, I hear that often when people talk about writing and it's like there's these things in us and that we can't not you know, yeah. get out there in some way. Um, and I, I think we'll have mentioned this in your, in your intro a little bit. You, you, um, did you go to friends university or you, I I mean, you teach there? Okay. And what, yeah. and, and so many of our listeners will be familiar with James Bryan Smith and the good, beautiful God and life and, um, and so on. What, what drew you there, uh, in, in, in your journey? Well, I, my undergrad was at, um, university of North Carolina here in Greensboro, where I live. Mm. And I, I um, went to school to become a sign language interpreter, so which I oh, did wow. for, for many years. I was uh, an, an interpreter for deaf students in the public school system. But uh, over time, um, you know, got married, had children, and was kind of done with school. But then I started to get really curious several years ago. Well, maybe it was about 2015, 2016, about spiritual direction. And in mm. my searching for kind of maybe programs or training or something in spiritual direction, I found the master's degree program at Friends University, which isn't Mm. actually a spiritual direction program. It's more broad. It's a master's in spiritual formation and leadership. But, Mm. uh, and I had, I think I had read one of Jim's books. And so that was James Bryan Smith, who goes by Jim, if Uh anybody doesn't know. Uh, (laughs) So I think that is maybe what what showed me that that school existed. I think the program was pretty new when I found it. Maybe they had had their first cohort. They were in the midst of their first cohort for the graduate school. So that's where I ended up getting my master's degree um, in spiritual formation. So I've gotten to know Jim that way. And some, I mean, just some of the most wonderfully beautiful people in the kind of small spiritual formation world, but who I've learned a lot from. Um, So that's kind of how I ended up there. And then after graduation, they invited me back to to come just for the residency weeks for the master's program. So I, I teach out there a couple times a year uh, for the master's program for the first year master's students and get to kind of I get the best of both worlds. I get to kind of sit through the 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 times in the in the residencies. I teach some, uh, but I don't have to grade any papers. So I do feel oh, like I kind nice. of win. I win the day. You did. You did, <laughs> you did kind of sneak one past there. That's good. Uh, uh, what do you teach on at, at Friends? So because I'm there just for those, um, you know, two residency weeks, every residency counts as one course for the mm. students. And so um, the first residency is about um, narratives in formation and how our narratives really shape what we believe about God, what we believe mm. about ourselves. And so we kind of have a, a tag team with the different teachers who who teach during that week of what we kind of touch on there. So, but it's all around that theme of narrative. And then the second residency, the theme is practice and um, spiritual Mm -hmm. formation and virtue. And so there is where we talk a lot about, okay, what does this look like to walk with God in everyday life? So I teach there some on rhythm of life um, Mm. and on what that maybe developing a rhythm of life. That's something that we want the students to kind of leave the program with is Mm. a, a rhythm of life that we recognize 
will change over time. But for this particular season, what does it look like to practice my life in a way that looks like me and not somebody else, you know, not somebody else's life? Because I think sometimes growing up in church like I did, sometimes there is this idea that walking with God or spirituality or however you talk about it has to look a particular way in order for it to quote unquote count. Right. And what we have discovered, hopefully over time as we grow, is that there are there are as many ways to to express love for and to be loved by God as there are people. And so the work of that week in some ways and, and kind of what I've taken on as my work that week with the students is to begin to name, know and name what those ways are in, mm. in our particular life and gifting. And so that's kind of what that that second uh, residency looks like. Well, that seems to, to very much have been, I don't know which informed which, but your, your work in The Next Right Thing seems very much tied into that. Uh, and I want to jump into that in one moment. And for those that may not know, Friends is a Quaker uh, school. Is that, I, I'm, that's not your background repping. Did you grow up in a Quaker church or did you? It's so it's such a fun conversation for me because yeah. no, I did not. Mm -hmm. um, I would say my roots are kind of non-denominational evangelical. Mm -hmm. um, the roots of my faith, Same. I would say that the the trunk of my faith tree um, is maybe more liturgical and practice. I would mm -hmm. say I'm kind of I have a, a maybe there's there's been a lot of watering by Catholic writers over the years. Mm -hmm. I'm, I am Protestant, mm -hmm. but I think I've mm -hmm. learned a lot from the Catholic tradition, sure. from Catholic friends and writers and thinkers. But I would say that the past maybe two-ish years, I would say the expression of my faith looks very Quaker. We actually attend mm. a Quaker meeting here mm. um, in our hometown and have for a couple of years. And then Friends University, while it is not necessarily Quaker in practice, it is Quaker in heritage. So they mm. were, you know, that is sort of, if you trace the roots back um, to the early 1900s, late 1800s, there's a Quaker heritage there. Um, and that comes out here and there, but it's, I wouldn't necessarily say it's straight up. I, we had uh, professors in the various classes from many different um, faith traditions okay. and expressions. Uh, so, so it is, it's a fun conversation. I've learned a lot from the Quaker yeah. expression of faith and I'm deeply grateful for it. I'm learning more. I'm definitely not, um, real schooled in it, but I'm, I'm learning as I go. And it's been a real gift. Give us one thing because most of us and myself included, I've never been to a Quaker meeting. Um, and so we may have perhaps even a caricature in our mind of what it is, or just, or maybe a blank, uh, around that. So give us just one thing that you've learned from a Quaker, your experience in the Quaker setting. I love that question. And I would say, First of all, if you don't have any experience with the Quaker tradition and don't know anyone who attends a Quaker meeting, um, there can be a lot of question marks. It's like, okay, I got, there's the oatmeal guy. I know that, <laughs> you know, and then um, there might be a few other, you know, tangential connections that you might have. But, and I would say there's such a wide gamut, right? Of, mm -hmm. of you know, there's, mm -hmm. you can walk into a Quaker meeting that looks almost exactly like your evangelical non-denominational church and mm -hmm. sounds like it. And then you might walk into another Quaker meeting and they don't even call upon the name of God. And they're a little bit more mm. social activist and that's kind of mm. their religion. And they would all say they're Quaker. And so there is a wide, um, uh, a wide definition, I would say, but in my experience, um, what I feel like I have learned the most from both learning some about the early Quakers, as well as the expression of the meeting where we go is 
uh, well, I would say two things. You said one thing, but I'm going to pull out two. Okay. One is their respect for and comfort with silence. Mm-hmm. And that uh, there is something really beautiful for me to sit in a room with other people sort of all oriented in the same direction toward God, but Mm -hmm. who aren't afraid to hold silence in community. Mm -hmm. I can hear a lot of really wonderful sermons online and I can read a lot of really wonderful books, but there's something about embodied listening Mm -hmm. uh, in a group of uh, Christians, a group of people who are acknowledging that the spirit of God is with us and among us and that no one feels the need to have to say words in that. Mm. Uh, there's a lot that can um, move within us that I think, I don't know, can happen any other way. And so that's mm. something that we, we attend a, a programmed service. So in the Quaker tradition, sometimes you'll find unprogrammed meetings where you go in and, and there really isn't like singing or, you know, there's not really a program. It, it's just you sit in silence and and maybe someone is moved to speak and maybe they aren't. You might sit in silence the whole hour. Yeah. Ours we have, we do have like 10 minute sermon um, and music. And it kind of looks like what you would think church. I mean, you would walk in and you would probably feel very comfortable there if you're yeah. someone who attends church regularly. However, after the sermon, there is an invitation into waiting worship. And in the waiting worship, it's just a, a time of held silence together. And sometimes it's, it's silent for 15 or 20 minutes. Wow. Sometimes um, someone will speak and several people will feel led to speak for a minute or two, either in reflection on what was shared, uh, maybe a scripture that comes to mind. Maybe there's a poem that comes to mind. One time I sat in meeting and someone broke into song, um, mm. uh, singing his eyes on the sparrow and that without wow. commentary. And it was just really wow. beautiful. So I can imagine that some listeners might be hearing that and and think that makes me deeply uncomfortable because uh. you just can't control what <laughs> might happen. Um, but I have found that that time has been really um, lovely and generative for us in the season where we're in right now. I, I, in fact, I experimented with that in pastoring. Um, the idea, not just the idea, the practice of of sitting in silence in response. You know, we we do so much in our in our church services, most of us, where we're listening or talking, and just the idea of and the practice of making space to say, "I'm going to sit with what," because you know. I mean, how many of us have pastored or spoken and, and we wonder, well, what did people take away? What did they, did they, did they reflect? And to to actually make space right there is so beautiful. And yet probably, like you said, for, it can be very uncomfortable for not used to being silent, you know, we'll do moments of silence in a, in a service and people think, wow, that was about an hour. Right. And it was, well, it was 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Yeah. It's always that 30 seconds. That's funny. <laughs> well, I mentioned I was going to say two things. I didn't want to leave anyone hanging sure. who was waiting for the second yes, thing. Yes, thank you. And I would say the second thing is um, Quakers are very much into, um, rather than the outward opulence of religion, mm. you know, the early Quakers, they were, you know, it was kind of a time of deconstruction in the mm. late 1600s. We can't imagine what that would be like, you know. No, uh, right. <laughs> we, we don't have any context for that. <laughs> but the early Quakers were really trying to kind of get back to what they believed was the simplicity of life with God and, and what it looked like to, that the, the light of Christ was within all believers. They're, mm. they're very much, um, you know, believed that, that God, that we all have access to 
talk with God, to hear from God, that we don't need a mediator in that way. And so this concept of the light within or an inner light um, is something that I have found to be really lovely mm. to explore and thinking about Christ as light. Um, yeah. And what does that look like that Christ is the light of the world and that Christ is in us and mm. we are all made in God's image. And so therefore, because that's true, how then should we live as we consider um, how to interact with others, as we consider mm. the peace testimony and thinking about, you know, how we deal with conflict and how we, um, even in, even as Quakers pray, they talk about holding you in the light, um, mm. that I will hold you in the light in this place mm. where you're struggling. And it's a really lovely image for me yeah. um, as I think about, um, rather than thinking of it as there's something I have to do to kind of make something happen, just even that image of holding someone in the, in the mm. light is a recognition that I, this is not me invoking some type of change. This is me surrendering to God who is who is higher and bigger and, and filled with light. And I'm going to hold you in that light and stand with you in that space rather than me trying to make something happen. That's really powerful. Uh, it, it reminds me of in a, in a spiritual direction training I was in a few years ago, we were invited to do a practice called simply beholding in which we were paired off with another person and we were to sit in silence together facing one another. One person for the first little while would have their eyes closed and the other was to behold them and and to see, to in a sense, look for, be present to the light of Christ within them and to sit for, you know, an, an uncomfortable length of time, 10 minutes, something right. like that, and then to reverse. And, and it was Honestly, even years ago, it was so powerful because for me personally, even as one who I, because I, I barely knew the person sitting across from me and yet I could visualize in a sense, I could almost have a sense of feeling God's light shining down even on them and within them. It was beautiful. Um, the other th thing, and we're, we're not going to spend this whole time on Quakers, but but I do think will lead hopefully to our conversation about your work, because the one piece of somewhat familiarity uh, I had and maybe some others have is a Quaker is a clearance committee, right? A, a, w a way in which people together work at making decisions and without getting and I Parker Palmer wrote about that in um, in his book, Let Your Life Speak, I believe. And but that really does lead us to this idea of decision making. And I was thinking about, you know, uh, the the of so many, I think you say in your book, Next Right Thing, the average person is making like, how many decisions a day was an astonishing amount? They say it's 30,000 and it seems impossible. And a lot of those are mindless, right, decisions mm -hmm. that we make. But that's a number that is repeated in many, many different places that it's yeah. adults make 30,000 decisions every day. That's crazy. And I think of... You know, and it seems like they expand in front of us, so particularly in the West, right? I, I think of oh, the image that comes to mind often is if uh, I don't know if you have Cheesecake Factory out there. And oh, I been listen, to that menu, stop! Oh it. my goodness, right? It's a it's a book, it's and a it's book. And, and it's it's and I think of decision overwhelm. You know, we talk about decision fatigue. It's like there's this decision overwhelm. I mean. And it's funny. And then we have, a, I don't know if you have them out there, we have In-N-Out Burger, right? Which has like six things on your menu. And yet we found a way to have the secret menu, right? Where there's 10, you know, hundreds of other things that you could just need to know that are also available that you maybe didn't even know. 
it's crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, so is that is is that what prompted you to want to write the next right thing? Just the sense of overwhelm with decisions. Yes, and what I found it, around the same time I was thinking about spiritual direction and formation and wanting to get some further training, I was I became very curious about what is it that leads us to make change in our life? What is it that actually elicits or begins or jumpstarts transformation? And one of the things that I discovered in my own life first was that when I have a decision to make, I am never more attuned to and aware of uh, God, the opinions of others, what I really want to do, the signs and signals around me. I mean, we'll right. listen, when we have an unmade decision, we'll do anything to Absolutely. have a direction. We want Absolutely. any input we can get to point us in the right direction. And I put mm -hmm. right in quotes because mm -hmm. we could have a whole conversation about what does the word right mean, yes. but any, any direction we can get, um, because Richard, I think something that I have discovered after hosting this podcast for six and a half years, after writing the next right thing book and talking to so many people about this concept is we have such a deep distrust for our own inner voice mm -hmm. that we look to everyone else to find out what our next right thing might be. Mm. And in my journey of writing about and thinking through and talking with people about decision-making and discernment, um, more and more I come back to this question of what if we could trust ourselves? And yeah. people, is, and I will say a lot of Christians are really uncomfortable with that question. Absolutely. Because we think that this, the heart is deceitful of all things and desperately right. wicked. Uh, and what I would simply say to that is number one, Trusting ourselves does not necessarily mean we trust ourselves to the exclusion of everything and everyone else. Mm. It means that we can trust ourselves in partnership with, and you mentioned the Clearness Committee of the Quakers. I mean, what a beautiful picture of communal discernment mm -hmm. where you're trusting one another and your own voice in the room, that mm. you're not discounting your own voice. If they all showed up to a Clearness Committee, to listen to God and to speak with one another and everyone distrusted themselves, then nothing would ever get done. And right. so this idea of what if I could trust myself in partnership with God and others, that then maybe my next right thing wouldn't feel like such a mystery because I could really and truly get quiet within myself, trust the light within who is God with me yes. and consider what is it that I really want to do? It's so, so refreshing. We talk about it in our soul care experience here that we do. We talk about the idea of knowing ourselves. And I, too, grew up with of uh, the very version of theology that you're describing, which when when we lean in too far is that idea. Well, why would I want to look inside at the, the muck and dirt there? There's nothing good in there. And yet it seems to miss two things. One is that original goodness before original sin. We were created good. And so even, even the most fallen, broken person, uh, and we all are in different ways, still retains the, the, the Imago Dei, the, you know, the very image of God. And second, our own theology also tells us that if we're in Christ, we have a new heart, a new aliveness towards God, that the, the, the core of me, the, the, the meest me there is, is alive towards God, wants to please him and is enlivened by the spirit. And so it seems like, yes, we want to not, as you said, simply trust only ourselves and only, and for some, 
trusting themselves might feel like, well, I'm just trusting how I feel today. But that's not at all what you're saying. I hear there's some so many invitations in your work to to sit, to reflect, to be present to 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 God's voice, but to your your own voice interacting with God's voice in you. If I'm if I'm capturing that right, absolutely. And and I love that you mentioned this concept of the image of God, the the imago Dei in us, because it does get forgotten, especially when we feel stuck. Because this kind of ingrained, and, and maybe not everyone has it, that, that ingrained belief that like, I can't make a good decision. <laughs> but I think no matter how grown you are, I think there is sometimes that deep down, like that fear that we're going to mess it all up and that we're mm. going to get it all wrong. And, and, I, and so just remembering kind of coming back to that original, that original place of in Christ, in God, um, that there is, there was something that happened, you know, before the fall, if you read Genesis, like there was a, an mm-hmm. initial idea. And so thinking through what does that look like? Okay, so what does that mean for me on a Tuesday? What does that mean <laughs> for me when I have to decide something about my future, big or small, um, and trusting that we're not alone in this, but also we're not, uh, it's not only others that get to speak into this. It's, it's, a, yes. t- it's a both and. I'm going to jump to a place in your book. It's later on in the next right thing. And your last comment prompted my thought on this. And that is, and I relate to this, is that we, the uh, the abundance of gurus, I, I don't remember your exact phrase, but I'm tempted often with that. When I feel stuck, when I feel like I don't, I, I want someone, I want, I have all these quote unquote expert voices, and they may be actual experts in a lot of different areas. And, and uh, I love how you described that you found yourself in one season in particular, and and you were like looking, doing some email clear out, I think, and you said, oh, I have all these different voices that I'm looking for. Could you speak to that a little bit? Because I thought your insight on that was really, really helpful. We've probably all found ourselves, and maybe, you know, towards the end of the year, the beginning of a new year, you find yourself rustling through your email subscriptions and you discover like, oh, I I have a lot of email that I don't read or it's cluttering the inbox. And when you, but if you start to pay attention to it, a lot of times it's stuff that you actually signed up for mm-hmm. at a time when you were having a question that you wanted an answer to, at least that's how mm-hmm. it's been for me. And so mm-hmm. the story you mentioned is I was cleaning out my inbox and I noticed I had, I mean, I had newsletters from a, like a relationship person, a financial person, a, you know, how to write an online course person. I had stuff about fashion. I had stuff about shoes. I mean, it was like every area of life where you could make a decision. I feel like I had found an expert in it. And two things I was aware of in that one, I was aware that I was collecting gurus in various areas of life. Um, but two, I also discovered the season of life when I was doing that was when I was actually had a decision to make in another area of life that I was avoiding. And so I was looking for some surety and some um, clarity in areas that the stakes were lower rather than giving myself the time and space that I needed to really listen to my own inner life, listen to God, listen to those who I trust the most in making this actual true grown-up decision that I needed to make. And so 
that may not be the case when we're collecting grooves. Sometimes, sometimes we just have a habit of listening to everyone else and trying to find experts in these areas. But mm -hmm. I find that contrasted with the concept of gathering co-listeners. And mm -hmm. co-listeners is uh, something that is similar to the clearness committee of who do you know in your life, who knows you well enough to know um, places where you might be called to and things that you might be your next right thing in a particular area of life. I know John and I, my husband and I, when he was, we gathered a group of co-listeners. We call, I mean, we made up that word, right? We didn't know about clearness committees back in 2013. I didn't. Um, but we created our own thing where we just brought people into our house who knew stuff about us, where John had left his job as a pastor of 12 years, but we didn't really know what was next. And so we gathered these people with us just so they could hear us say words. And as they listened, with discernment, they reflected back to us what we were saying. And these were not gurus. These were, these were co-listeners. These were people who yeah. we trusted to hold space for us and not to tell us what to do, but to yeah. help us discern maybe what we kind of already knew deep down that maybe we were afraid to say or face. So that mm -hmm. idea of collecting gurus, I would say, it, and the, the contrast between that and gathering co-listeners is there's a real energy in my body that is different when I'm collecting gurus. There's a frenetic energy of like, mm -hmm. oh, let me, I got to find, I got to learn from everyone else and try to gather more and more and more information. And some of our personalities are more like that than others, mm -hmm. rather than really centering down and thinking about who knows me well, who will tell me the truth in love um, and who can we trust, who will take time to listen without, in many ways, without an agenda. Um, and kind of surround us in that time. And that energy in my body is really different than yeah. the guru collection energy. So wise, so wise. And like, I love the contrast too. It's not just people that are going to just tell me what to do or be quick to give advice, but are going to truly hold and attend to what's, what I'm saying, what's coming out of me, what they know about me or us. And that's, that's, that's so, so helpful. Um, there's so much I want to jump into and yet I want to get to your, your new book here. But before I do, I, I, I want to, I want to invite you to speak a little bit too, because I find this returning to again and again in your work is this idea of, of making space. And by space, it usually means some level of quiet, not just external, but internal quiet, or you used the term a moment ago, even centering down. And, um, and we're not necessarily, if I read you right and I'm not necessarily looking for an audible voice to, to speak or um, or some something magical, if you will, but but to to enter into quiet and trust that the the voice of the spirit of God, however we might experience um, God's voice, it might be a gentle nudge, it might bring us to scripture, it might be uh, just a different, even you said a different energy that we might experience in our body. Why is that so hard for us? Um, because our world is so noisy, I know, but you know that th there's a part of us, I think we hear that and we say, yeah, that sounds right. And I don't know if I can do that, or that scares me, or I'm not one of those contemplative people. I, you know, why is it so hard for us to embrace quiet, do you think? Well, I think two things. We're afraid of what we will hear, and we're afraid we won't hear anything at all. I also think a lot of it has to do with our culture. And I mean, I don't know about you, but I was raised in the Western culture where there's very much this external, informational, didactic way of learning and of um, expressing ideas. Hmm. 
And I think I've learned a lot in recent years from, uh, for example, there's a book called Our Unforming by Cindy S. Lee. And she is an Asian American woman who writes about um, sort of the de-Westernization of spiritual Mm. formation Mm. and of learning from Eastern traditions what it means to walk with God and how we have discounted some things. Because, listen, if I say we are all mystics, someone is going to cringe because Mm -hmm. the word mystic is scary because of Mm -hmm. all the things that we connect that with. But Mary was a mystic. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you look in, you know, a scripture, like we, we believe in a God we can't see that's mystical. Mm -hmm. That's a mystical thing. Um, So just, but even, even the language that we use, um, I think Mm -hmm. can, can determine how the narrative that we bring into the room of listening, of reflection, of silence. There's just, we don't have a lot of practice. It is not Mm -hmm. built into our Western culture to, as we talked about earlier with the Quaker tradition, to sit in silence in community um, and and definitely not to sit in silence on our own. And so just like anything else, I mean, you go to a regular old university today, you're going to probably have to take at least one class in communication where you Mm -hmm. learn how to public speak. Nowhere that I know of, except in spiritual formation programs, are you learning how to publicly listen. Mm-hmm. And I think it should be required for every regular old university is we are yeah. learning how to say words, but where are we learning how to hold space and how to listen to others say words, mm-hmm. including God and spirit. So mm-hmm. of course we can't even listen to each other. How are we, mm-hmm. how in the world are we supposed to be expected to, to listen to um, the divine voice and movement of a mysterious God. Yeah. I think it makes a lot of sense why we would avoid that because it's scary and we don't know how to do it. Uh, yeah. And so for me, I have found a nice entry point into that. If you're someone who is curious about that is, um, is just the simple practice of reflection of having a regular rhythm of life where you reflect on your life. And I, I like to say, reflection is a lifestyle, not an event. And so a lot of times people, you know, you wait, I think culturally we think it's okay to reflect at the end of the year, right? Like look back on the year and what was your highlights and all the things that's great. And I am a huge fan of it, but if we wait until the end of the year to reflect on 12 months, it's going to be very thin and it may not be enough to really impact our future decisions because our best indicators of future decisions are decisions we've already made. But if we wait until the end of the year to reflect on them, we're going to forget a whole lot of stuff just because we're people. Um, and so I like to have a regular rhythm of reflection, whether that's a daily examine, um, like we learn from the Ignatian tradition, where you sort of look back on the day and consider where did I see God today um, as you before you move forward into the next day. But a very simple way to do that, and it's, it's Ignatian adjacent, I'll say, <laughs> Ignatian adjacent, is this idea of just asking yourself two questions. When I think about the last, either the day, the week, the month, whatever it is, whatever period of time is asking myself, what has been life draining and what has been life giving? And just those two questions. And I would suggest ask the life draining question first, because you want to end on a high note. So that life giving is second and really writing it down. I have found writing it down and having it be embodied is really is really helpful. Yeah. Doesn't have to be complete sentences. You can just jot mm-hmm. it down. But just having a regular practice of asking yourself those two questions can help us listen to our own voice and what we mm-hmm. really want and long for. Because spoiler alert, what you want is what you want, whether or not you admit it. And it right. it will come out one way or the other. It doesn't mean 
that we grab onto what we want and demand what we want, that, mm-hmm. that would be, that would be um, unhelpful and, and, and not great, right. but it does mean that confessing what we want in the presence of God and the presence of others can free us up to, mm-hmm. to get it or not. But, yeah. but recognizing it can, can kind of, and naming it in life giving and life draining, I think is a really helpful practice. And that's one way to begin to listen to the voice of God, because mm-hmm. I believe that, um, God speaks in those ways too, it through our mm-hmm. desire, through what mm-hmm. we're drawn to as we're, as we consider and listen and, and ask for those, you know, kind of openings. I, I believe God delights in, in communicating to us in those ways. I do want to jump into you because you have a book that's coming out. It'll be coming out shortly after this. Uh, this will be airing or, or releasing or however, what the, whatever the right term is for that in podcast world. But um, talk about what prompted you to write um, how to walk into a room. Because it's funny because I, I said before we started, I keep thinking how to walk out of a room. And that was probably tells you where my journey has been. There was times when I should have walked out and sometimes I didn't. Um, but but how to walk into a room. Tell, tell us even what, what that means. Where did that come from for you? Well, the Next Right Thing book released in 2019. And what I have found in the five years since is that a lot of the conversations, the, the most spirited, I'll say, conversations I have with people, the ones where people care the most about how, it, how the conversation goes, is when they are trying to discern whether or not they should leave or stay in a space, whether that's a job, um, a, a community, a town, whatever it is. And I have found that while the Next Right Thing book, I think broadly is really helpful for um, kind of developing a rhythm of life where you are able to support soulful decision-making, I think for someone who is trying to discern today, I'm a, I'm in a room that maybe I once belonged in, but I'm questioning whether or not I belong here anymore, mm-hmm. that I wanted to, to take that one question and write a whole book on that. I want to have an entire mm-hmm. conversation on what do you do when the room that you're in is no longer a room where you belong? Mm-hmm. And how can you discern if this is just me uncomfortable or, you know, bored, or if there's something really here that I'm being called away from, or, and often thinking about how to walk into a room being called towards. Mm -hmm. And so that is sort of the catalyst to, as I paid attention to conversations that were coming out of that last book, so much of the energy was, was that distress that I found people had. Mm -hmm. And me too is, is people who, you know, if life were a house, every room holds a story. And so that question of what do I do when a room I'm in is no longer a room where I belong or where I want to be or where I think I ought to be. But how can I leave? And so I think that back to that idea of narratives is we all have a lot of narratives around leaving, mm-hmm. around staying, around what it means to quit and what it means to walk away. Mm-hmm. And so you're right to think about the concept of how to walk out of a room because part one of the book is how to walk out of a room. Okay. Um, and so, it, because I, I think that this conversation, this conversation has to start with, well, where am I sensing a need 
to pull away from something mm-hmm. and how and what questions do I have in this space and what questions should I be asking um, right. before I can walk into the spaces where I'm I can most flourish and grow and that maybe it doesn't have to mean that where I am now is a bad place and it doesn't yeah. have to mean that I made the wrong decision the first time it mm. simply means that there is a healthy human rhythm to finding new rooms and to mm. leaving old ones and we don't have to put a moral judgment on whether or not something was good or bad, which is something we're so good at doing, right? Like, right. well, this I chose wrong and I prayed and discerned and here I am. And but so I can't possibly leave this place because it was right at one time. Right. But I, I really want to normalize things being right at one time and then mm-hmm. things changing and no yes. longer being right for the future. Mm. It's so, so, so wise. I, I think of my own journey, you know, and how these narratives you talked about, referred to can get embedded in us. And um, it was all the way back in high school. I was a freshman in high school and I had uh, signed up for, for the cross country team and I had never uh, run cross country. I'd never been on, on any, uh, well, little league, but never on a group team, uh, a team sport. And so anyway, I trained all summer and then I got to the, you know, to school and I found out that I couldn't keep up, literally couldn't keep up with these guys at all. Um, they went on to win state, but that, that I didn't know that. <laughs> and, and I, uh, I, I, I was overwhelmed by the whole thing. They weren't going to cut me, but I was just not going to be able to compete. And I, I say all that to say, I, I remember meet with my parents going into the meet with the coach and, and, um, I did quit, but I, mean, I remember my parents saying, Richard, you know, just because something's hard doesn't mean we quit and we don't want you to make this a pattern, basically. Well, I internalized that as basically I should never quit anything again. And I ended up, you know, staying and I'm not blaming my parents. This is how I internalized that, Um, that that sense of you stick it out even when it's hard. That's that's just part of the deal. And so I think that's so helpful to say it doesn't mean it was it may have been the right thing for that time or for a season, but um, I'm, I'm wondering this too, Emily, what, how does you see this relate? You know, the other term that we hear a lot these days is either de-churching, deconstruction, people reevaluating maybe even where they go to church or what that, what their faith expression looks like. Was, was this book in any way a response to some of those conversations or how does that factor in? So this book, it's funny you say that, cause I know you haven't read it yet. It's not out yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but but this book really in it, we tell the story um, of, of discerning that for ourselves, of mm-hmm. a, a church we were in for seven years and discerned mm-hmm. over time through different situations in our family and also just kind of what was happening within us, um, that it was time for us to leave that space. And if mm-hmm. you had asked me, you know, two years before we left, if I would ever have, you know, think about leaving, and I, I wouldn't have. I mean, it wasn't mm-hmm. something on my radar, but things do change and people do change. And I think that that can be really scary, um, especially in faith spaces, because so much of our narratives about God are wrapped up in where we go to church, who we worship with. Um, I mean, for us, you know, we're church people, you know, we just are. And for maybe like five minutes, we tried not to be just like, wonder what that would be like. And it just wasn't great for us. Mm -hmm. And, And I know everyone has their own story, but for us, we we really discern like we would like to find a space where we can be oriented in the same direction with other people and have who are having these conversations and who are walking with God. And that was important to us in our own life. But I do think that it, it can be really scary because like I was saying, 
for us, our, our community was at that church, our, uh, small group, mm-hmm. our service, our money, they helped us know what to care about, um, where to offer our time and serve. And so, so much of your communal life can be wrapped up in your faith space, not to mention how you see and experience God. And so to begin to pull at that thread for whatever reason, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of people are maybe holding that right now. The question of, is this the, the space for me? Is this a place where I feel called to? for whatever reason or not. And is it even okay to ask that question? I think some Mm -hmm. of us are in that space. And um, so, so I can deep, I have a lot of compassion for that question for people Mm -hmm. who are maybe standing at the edges of their own sanctuary and wondering, is this my space? And I, and I, you know, I know there's pushback there because I think I would hear, you know, maybe someone say, well, you know, church is, is not the building or the place, it's the people. Or church is not our, we're not there to be consumers of something. We're there to contribute to something. But I do, and that, and I think that's all true. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that the one space that we find ourselves in is necessarily the right space forever. And it has to be okay for us to mm-hmm. begin to question that. And I don't yeah. think God's threatened by that question. Mm-hmm. And even though we might be, or or people in our in our church spaces might be, so so yes, to answer your question, um, one of the rooms that I walked into and out of is is the the room of faith community of church, and that's something that yeah. I think is an important conversation to have. It is, and I think you know to our audience, which includes a lot of pastors, and I pastored for thirty plus years, and I I know what it's like to have people walk out of the room that I'm a leader in. Right. And how hard that can be and and how maybe sometimes even the best parts of us don't always come out in that space where we can feel hurt, betrayed, rejected or even or what can come out of us can be, you know, why are you doing that or challenging or questioning? I haven't always handled that well. And yet and yet what I hear in in your work and and actually both the next right thing and in this, which I haven't read yet, of course, but but it's, it really is about discernment. It yeah. seems like there's this invitation to discern um, with God, with uh, appropriate others, and pay attention to what is God's invitation to me, to those, uh, me in particular, but in in this season, and that it can change. Um, is that would you say that's kind of a core of what you're what you're working at? I think you said that so well, and I'll and I'll just basically repeat what you said, which is I think the next right thing conversation was really about decision making, soulful decision making, and what it, and and how that phrase "just do the next right thing" has changed my life. And I and mm. I didn't come up with it. I, I recognize I did not come up with this phrase. It has been around for a very long time, but I am grateful to be one to borrow and share it. But that is sort of a day to day way of being. I, I ask mm. myself that question every day: What's my next right thing? Okay, now mm. what's my next right thing? So that feels very practical. I would say how to walk into a room, and and the subtitle is the art of knowing when to stay and when to walk away. Mm. It is it is a decision making book, but I would say maybe on a deeper level, it is a discernment book. Mm-hmm. And so this is where we are maybe just settling a little deeper in, as far as okay, we we understand the importance of doing the next right thing, and that's even throughout. But what about when your next right thing is like it, it's just this huge 
mammoth thing. It's like it's going to determine where you live or who you worship with or who you're in relationship with. It it has big consequences and there's a lot at stake. And how can we enter into that conversation, um, especially when, you know, there are various ways of endings and beginnings. I mean, there are the beginnings, there are the endings that we anticipate. So graduations and retirements and a baby is coming and there's a wedding. There are endings that are forced where you get fired or you get rejected or you showing up and telling the truth got you kicked right out of someplace and you didn't see it coming. But then there's also those endings that are discerned. And I think that's probably where, while while we talk about all three of those endings in how to walk into a room, what I really want to help people do is what do you do when you're the one who who is being tasked to discern if this is your space or not anymore? And and I try to offer practices and frameworks, a very simple framework to walk you through that so that by the end of the book, maybe you've made your decision, maybe you haven't, but now you have some tools in your toolbox yeah. to, to use so that you can help hopefully um, discern that larger, maybe more consequential decision um, in your life. So good. I, I, I'm so grateful for, for the, this kind of work and invitation. I, I grew up as well in church and often decision-making discernment. Uh, it was often this uh, treated, at least the way I understood it as kind of this bullseye that I had to figure out how to, how to get the decision right. And the, and if I didn't, you know, whether it was marrying the right person, the right place to go to school, God's will. And what if I was outside of that? And, and it was so scary because it was like, wow, what, what I make one wrong decision and you know what's the domino effect of that and this this is feels so much more honestly in line with what i see in scripture and uh, experience of the nature and character of god who invites us to be present to him and is is not that god doesn't care what decisions we make but he's much more interested in us seeking him i, I wanted to share one brief uh anecdote and then invite you to comment and reflect on that to, to maybe kind of conclude our time. If I it, it was inspired by, as I was reading um, last night in your book, Next Right Thing, I was reminded of a, a period about 15 plus years ago. And a friend of mine uh, and said invited me to fast with him. And um, I don't like fasting. I mean, maybe other people do, uh, but I, I don't. But it was like, you know, I think we had tried a three-day one. He said, let's do a 10-day fast. And I was really intimidated, but I probably approached it more as like, you know, an endurance test more than anything. But I did have big decisions, vocational decisions I was trying to make, um, but whether to stay in my current position or not. So relating to your, and I had been at that church a long time and I wasn't sure. And I thought, okay, well, this will be a really, you know, 10 days and I'll really show God I'm serious about wanting his will in this. And what I remember about that time it was a couple days into this fast. I felt like I heard as clearly as I as I tend to hear God, and it wasn't a voice or anything, but just a very clear sense of God saying, "I'm not asking you to so much seek a decision like what's the is it stay or go. I want you to seek me. I want you to just seek me." And that sort of freed up the compulsion. I was having, or even the way I was approaching this whole experience was I need to get the right bullseye answer and then I can do it and then I can pat myself on the back or feel comfortable that I did the right thing. And, and I, I hear such a different approach in your writing and in your work in, 
in both in the next right thing and it sounds like what you're describing and how to walk into a room would you maybe would you more you'd want to comment about that not my story but just the, the well process. but i i do love i think that your story is a is an excellent uh image and by the way our minds remember stories way more than they remember anything else so probably that's yeah. all people will remember from this conversation yeah, is your story because because story that's what we're made right we're made to connect with story first this mm. happened then this happened then this happened mm. And in light of that, I think that, and maybe Dallas Willard, I think I think it was Dallas Willard who said something very similar, which was that God is much less interested in the decisions we make than in the person who we are becoming. Mm-hmm. And yes, our decisions play into that, um, but really, it, it's kind of it's kind of like about the process rather than the destination. And that we get we can get so very hung up on this or that, yes or no, stay or leave. And while and I think those are very important questions that God cares about because we care about them. Mm-hmm. But really the process of um, that, that that's not our focus of attention, that our focus of attention is and can be our union with God and, and walking along with our friend Jesus in mm-hmm. our ne- as we do our next right thing. And, mm-hmm. and whether things turn out well or whether they turn out terribly, that the reality is, as our friend Jim Smith says, that I am one in whom Christ dwells and delights and I live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. That kingdom is not in trouble, and neither am I. And those are words that I have held on to as I have both made done my next right thing and sometimes my not so next right thing. And that has brought me a lot of peace and comfort along the way. Wow. Could you say that one more time? I love that. That I love that. Could you say it with uh, Jim Smith? Say Jim one more Smith. Time? He calls this one of the power narratives. And I think that there's a reason for that. It's because when you say it, a lot of times people will say, could you repeat that? Yeah. Because there's power in it. Yeah. It's, I am one in whom Christ dwells and delights. I live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. The kingdom is not in trouble and neither am I. Mm. Emily, what a gift it has been to make your acquaintance today and to get to talk to you. Thank you so much. You, um, we're going to link in our show notes uh, to uh, to to your book, to well, your books, and um, and and people can also find you on social media. I know I I do follow you on Instagram. What is your handle? Is that what they call it? I what? I don't know what they call it, Richard. Yeah, so okay. you can find me on Instagram. It's just my full name, Emily P. Freeman. And same as the website is emilypfreeman.com. Thank you again. I encourage people to, to, to not just follow you, but to, to dive in, to listen, and to, with God, discern what God has in mind and how to really make space for him. Thank you for this time. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to today's conversation. We hope it's been helpful to you. And we'd love to serve you in any way we can at Wellspring. For more information about who we are and what we do, please go to wellspringca.org or look us up on Facebook. Just search under Wellspring. Until next time, grace and peace.